Thanks for listening to this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. Today, we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. So, my wife and I, Sarah Beth, we, we like musical theater. We like to go to musicals sometimes. And we got tickets to Hamilton a few years ago. And it was right about in, I would say, March of 2020. In fact, if you remember the events of March 2020, when um, everything kind of shut down, our tickets for Hamilton were the Tuesday after that, literally two days after the government shut everything down. And uh, so they said, well, you can either cancel them or you could postpone your tickets. So we postponed our tickets for the next year. We're like, yeah, okay, we got to wait a year for Hamilton, but it'll be all right. Well. a year later, they got postponed again. So we finally saw Hamilton like a month ago. And it was pretty good. And I bring this up because, you know, if you've ever seen Hamilton, if you haven't seen it, uh, the, the part of Hamilton which covers cabinet meetings in the, in the first administration of the government, they are formed as rap battles where Alexander Hamilton is having this rap battle with uh, Thomas Jefferson over these different arguments that they're having in the government. It happens twice in the musical, and I say this because I believe that if Lin-Manuel Miranda was writing a musical about the life of Jesus, Mark chapter 12 would be a rap battle. The whole chapter would be taking place as of this, this battle between Jesus and different groups of people. First, there's this group of people that come up to him. The Pharisees come up to him, and they're trying to catch him. They're going to trick him into this, um, into this corner where he's going to give this bad answer. So they come up to him, and they say, Hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes or not? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus, and they're like, ha, 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 we got him now. Because if he tells us not to pay taxes to Caesar, then he's this radical revolutionary and we can knock him. What are you trying to do? Get us in trouble with the government? We got enough problems. But if we tell him to pay, if he tells us to pay taxes to Caesar, then he can say, ha, 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 Jesus doesn't care about the Jewish people. He's trying to keep us under the thumb of Caesar. And so they, they think they've got him in this catch-22. But of course, Jesus says, whose picture's on this coin? They say, well, Caesar's. And he said, okay, let Caesar have what's Caesar's. And let God have what's God's. And then he just totally just flummoxes these guys because you cannot dispute that answer. But they're trying to to trap him in this paradox, this catch-22 of right action. What's the right action to take right now, Jesus? And the second group comes up, and they try to catch him in this catch-22 of doctrine and of belief. The Sadducees are next. And the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. They believe that once you die, you stay dead, and that the resurrection is impossible. And of course, Jesus is out here teaching about the resurrection. So they give him this, this convoluted 
hypothetical scenario. Jesus, what if there is this woman who dies without a husband, and then she marries the guy's brother, and he dies without having a child? And then this happens seven different times. And so when they all get resurrected, whose wife is, is she? And Jesus just says, guys, this is a non-issue. <laughs> he says, Jesus is here for the living, not for the dead. When the resurrection comes, then, then all of these bets are going to be off. And then, you know, he, he literally says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given or marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the story of the bush, how God said, I am God of the Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so he puts them in their place. And so then a third guy comes up to him, and it's a scribe who's heard what Jesus has been saying in these, in these battles. And there's actually some dispute among scholars whether or not this scribe was trying to one-up Jesus again or if he was being sincere in his question. And that brings us to our scripture for this morning. I don't know if he's sincere or not, but, but whatever happens, this is what, what Jesus said. So we're in Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I got to wondering, what about this answer to this scribe is the thing that stopped all other questions? Why is it that after this question, nobody else dared Jesus to ask anything? You know, in the, in the rap battle uh, in Hamilton, once Hamilton gives like the definitive answer, and this, have, this is like a cultural thing, he takes the mic and he drops it. I'm not going to do it with any of our mics because I need to, you know, not break them. But he takes the mic, he gives a mic drop. And that mic drop signifies this is it. This is the last thing that there is to say. I don't care if this microphone breaks at this point, because even if it does, there's nothing else you can come back to that's going to be any different than this. It's almost like a lawyer saying, I rest my case. The rapper says, mic drop. And Jesus says, this is it. This is, this is the end of the matter. They were amazed, and they just did not dare to ask him any other questions. But why is it this? Why is it this thing 
He didn't drop the mic when he talked about paying taxes. He didn't drop the mic when he talked about the resurrection. But when he started teaching about love, that was the definitive answer. I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm not in the minds of the people in that room. But I suspect that the reason this shut down any further conversation is, first of all, they knew that Jesus was right. And second of all, I think this answer revealed that Jesus saw right through the people in that room. Jesus saw through the questions. He saw through the the hypotheticals. He saw through the tricks, and he saw into their heart. And they did not like that. And they didn't dare ask Jesus anything else because they figured, if he knows about what my heart is like, what's he going to say next? If he knows what's deep down inside me, and I ask him another question, what's he going to reveal about me then? So they they said, no thanks, I'm not going to do it. You see, this first group of people, these Pharisees, they're trying to teach, they're trying to trick Jesus into, into revealing some kind of bad practice. The $10 seminary word for right practice is orthopraxy. Orthopraxy means that you act the right way. You, you act in the way consistent with the historic faith. And they're trying to trick him into going against the right thing to do, either by, by saying, you are bad for the Jewish people. You're either bad for the Jewish people because you're trying to get the Romans mad at us, or you're bad for the Jewish people because you're bending the knee to Rome and not to God. Either way, they're trying to reveal some kind of wrong act out of God. But Jesus pointed out that you can act in all the right ways. You can be, have all the orthopraxy you want in your life and still not act out of love. If all you're interested in is maintaining some kind of internal moral purity inside of yourself without caring about what God is calling to do, you to do for your neighbor, then you can have all of the right actions and none of the right motives and you're still loose in the wind. If the whole point of acting right is that you can tell who's in your group and who's outside of your group so that you can exclude those who don't act right, then you're not living the ethic of the first commandment or the second commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. You can have all of the right actions you want. You can have all of the moral purity you want. You can be all of upstanding and respectable as you want, and you can still be devoid of love. And if you're not loving, then you're not following God's commandments. This is what Jesus is proving. And so then the second group, the Sadducees, they're not worried about right action. They're worried about right belief. They're trying to practice, trap him in a trap of orthodoxy. There's orthopraxy and orthodoxy. And they're there saying, well, we don't think you believe the right thing about the resurrection. And so we're going to try to trick you into saying something that just doesn't make sense. And then we're going to say, ha! That doesn't make sense. What about this? And then we're going to prove our, our doctrinal superiority over you. 
Well, forget about the fact that they don't have doctrinal superiority. They were wrong about their doctrine. But you can be orthodox all day long without love. If all you're interested in is being right and winning arguments and teaching other people how wrong and how bad they are, then you can be right with your doctrine, but wrong in love. And the Sadducees weren't even right. They're grilling Jesus on this topic, and he knows way more about resurrection than they do, and he's fixing to prove it, right, by, you know, resurrecting from the dead. I think the, the point is that we always need to maintain a loving humility with when we come to right belief. Because we could get, we could, we could drill down hard on what we believe to be right belief and then find out that we're wrong about something. Because the truth is, God is so big, God is so complex that we cannot wrap our minds around the full truth of God. Right? The scripture says, we see now through a mirror dimly, but one day we'll see things clearly. And that means that the best theologian, the most right-believing theologian, believes something about God that is wrong, or at least isn't fully right. And so we have to approach belief, we have to approach orthodoxy with humility, knowing that, okay, I can win an argument, with someone, I can be right, but I don't get points in heaven for being right. I get points in heaven for love. The minute we think that we have God all figured out is the minute that we can know for sure that we don't. Because God is too big for us to figure out. Loving God and loving our neighbor in our beliefs demands humility from us. Real faith, real Christianity means that our right belief and our right actions spring out of the fount of love for God and love for our neighbor. It cannot spring out of a self-serving desire to be right it can't spring out of a self-serving desire for other people to respect us. It has to come because we love God so much that we seek after his truth. It has to come because we love God so much that we want to see our neighbor flourish as much as we want to see ourselves flourish. Because we know that God created us, that God loves us, and we are returning that love as the best way that we can. Now, this doesn't mean that right belief and right action aren't important. Of course they're important. It's important to believe the right things. It's important to act the right ways. But we just cannot put the cart before the horse. We cannot put acting right and believing right before love. We have to put love out front. And then love pulls our right belief in our right actions. That's just got to be how it is. Rich Mullins, one of my favorite singers, has this quote that I love. It's from, like, some live performance that got caught on CD, uh, that, that got distributed as a CD. But he just says, 
you can say the doctrines, you can affirm the creeds until you're blue in the face. But if you haven't loved somebody, then you never were a Christian. Man, how convicting. The first commandment is to love God with everything that we have. And the second one is to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, when I was a little kid, I grew up in the, in the era of the Care Bear cartoon. My little sister watched it more than I did, but I'd be lying if I didn't say I didn't sneak in there and watch a few episodes too. Most episodes of the Care Bear cartoon ended with the Care Bears doing something called the Care Bear Stare, where they'd poke out their bellies like this, and some rainbow of caring would shoot out of their belly buttons, I guess, and hit a, um, a target of someone who wasn't caring enough. And this Care Bear stare would just overwhelm them with such good feelings that they would turn their lives around and start caring about other people, I guess. I don't know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And sometimes when we talk about love and loving our neighbor and loving God, we kind of think about love as this good feeling. Like we can come and, I don't know, Jesus bear stare our problems away by loving and having good enough warm, happy feelings about other people or about our faith or something. And that'll, that'll fix everything. Loving God and loving our neighbor isn't a matter of conjuring up warm feelings. It's not about conjuring up warm feelings for God. And it's not about conjuring up warm feelings for our neighbor. Love is not a feeling that we have. It is an action that we take. It is a decision that we make. When we say that we're loving God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our strength, what we're saying is that we are deciding to choose God over ourselves. We are deciding to chase after God's truth and to believe what God says. We're going to study his word. We are going to hear from the Holy Spirit, and we are going to choose God over our own ways. That's what love is. And yeah, man, warm feelings come out of that. We can have a good, warm feeling in worship. We can feel that God loves us. That The feelings are there, but we're not dependent on those feelings. It's not about having a warm feeling. It's about choosing to love God with our actions. Similarly, loving our neighbor of ourselves isn't about handing, holding hands over a campfire and singing kumbaya. Sometimes we're called upon to love people that we can't stand. And it's hard. But loving our neighbor as ourselves means, you know what I want for myself? I want myself to flourish. I want myself to succeed. I want myself to be to feel safe and good. I want to experience love with my family. And you know what? I want that for the people that I can't stand to. I want them to succeed. I want them to, to flourish. I want them to be loved by God. I want them to know what it means to be secure in a loving relationship with God. Everything that I want for myself, I got to want for my neighbor too, whether I like them or not. It's not about conjuring up warm feelings for that person. I don't 
I kind of suspect Jesus didn't have too warm of feelings about the Pharisees and the Sadducees all the time. But he wanted them to know the living God and not be stuck in the dead religion they were in. He loved them as he loved himself. Loving God with all your mind means that you are dedicated to the truth. And you know what? If you're dedicated to the truth, it means when you learn new things, sometimes you change your mind. It doesn't mean that you're stuck with the same faith and the same ideas that you've had since you were, you know, knee-high to a grasshopper. It means that when God reveals something new to you, you go with what God says, not with what has always been. Loving your neighbor as yourself means that they probably ought to notice it. Sometimes people say, well, you know, they're, they're all in this mode of tough love. Well, I love, I, you, sometimes you got to love people and they don't always receive that as love, but you know you're loving them anyway. Well, you know what? If people around you aren't receiving your love as love, it might not be as loving as you think. Doesn't mean there's never tough love, but, but if you're loving your neighbor, they probably ought to notice. Just putting that out there. But Jesus saw through the ways in which people were acting right without love, in which people were believing right without love, and he challenged them to make love the driving ethic of their faith, to make love come first and right belief and right action follow. We will never be right enough to get into heaven. We will never act good enough to get into heaven. But when we receive the love of Jesus and offer that love back to God and offer that love to our neighbor, then we bring heaven to earth. Right belief follows love. Right acts follow love. But love doesn't necessarily follow right belief and right act. So my question for you today is, what is the driving ethic of your faith? Is it being right? Is it winning an argument? Is it being able to prove that you have the best doctrine or best theology? Is it acting right? Is it having the right morals? Is it knowing the right things to do? Is it, is it knowing that you're better than the person down the street when it comes to your, your morals? Or is it love? Because when we love God and we love others, we are following Jesus. He said it's the first command and the second one right up behind. So let's follow Jesus in these first things, trusting that everything else will come behind. Let's make love the ethic that drives our faith. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, I confess to you that so often I have had a desire to be right and that desire to be right has driven me away from love. God, I pray that you will show me the way to make love the defining aspect of my faith. I pray that you will show me who to love and that you will inspire me to love you most of all. 
And God, I pray that for each of us, that you will grow us in love for you, love for your word, love for your statutes, love for your Holy Spirit that shows us the way, and love for each other. Not just the people in this room, although for sure the people in this room, but the people we encounter day to day. God, give us the courage to desire what we want for ourselves, for the people in our lives. Whether it's a random person at the store, or the person that lives across the street, or the person I'm in conflict with, or the person that lives under my roof. God, let love come first in my life and in all of our lives. Give us the courage to make it so. In your name I pray, amen.